Christ, but also as your word incarnate. You can imagine what it was like. You're a Israelite suffering in Egypt. Every year that goes by, every month that goes by, the burden that's put on you as a slave gets harder and harder. You can feel extra lashes on your backs as you build yet one more monument to celebrate the glory of Pharaoh. And then finally, God sends a prophet, actually two prophets, Moses and Aaron, to help bring deliverance for you. And after a series of of amazing wonders that God does, Pharaoh lets you go free. Trek your way across the desert with whatever you can carry or whatever you can drag along in a small cart, all of your worldly possessions with you. You make your way across that dry, parched desert and you come across a sea. All seems to be well until you look behind. Behind you, you see a cloud of dust rising up. Immediately, you know what that dust signifies. That dust, that cloud of dust is being kicked up by the chariots and the horses of the armies of Pharaoh. Pharaoh has changed his mind. He's come to pursue you. Now a chariot in the ancient world might liken to a helicopter today in warfare. A chariot in the ancient world was fast-moving Uh, You had oftentimes an archer perched on the back who could fire uh, with impunity a rain of arrows uh, into his enemies. Or perhaps you had someone wielding a spear. Either way, if you were on your feet, even if you were armed, there was very little you could do against the mighty power of chariots. So you were afraid. As the army kept getting closer and closer, you realized that your end was going to be upon you. As bad as slavery was in Egypt, you would rather be a slave in Egypt than die there by the shores of the sea. Then, something miraculous happens. The cloud, the cloud of smoke that you'd followed by day and the cloud of fire, the the pillar of fire that you followed by night, moves and moves in between you and the armies of Pharaoh. And then, Moses raises his arms and the sea parts and you begin to walk on dry ground across that sea. And it's pitch black as you're walking across. You can still see the pillar of fire behind you as you make your way forward. And as you go forward, finally, the the armies of Pharaoh make their way around the cloud of fire and they come after you and they come into the ground, but somehow the ground has become more muddy for them and their their horses and their chariots get caught in it and you are still walking on dry ground all through the pitch black of the night. You make it to the other side only for the waters to come back to their normal level and to wipe out the armies of the Pharaoh. You, former slave, have now been delivered. You are free. There's this curious detail at the end of this passage. Curious detail uh, that the author insists on adding in. Where after all is done, after this great victory, sea washed up on the seashore, bodies of the dead Egyptians. Something might move inside you and you think about what the story of that Egyptian might have been. Maybe that Egyptian was pressed into service. 
fight for Pharaoh. He was told that he had no choice. Perhaps it was a great honor and brought great honor to him and to his family that he could be chosen to be, say, a chariot driver. Perhaps that person whose body was washed up on the sea had a family, a family that he was supporting through his service to Pharaoh. And perhaps that soldier also had an eldest child who had been killed in the last of the great plagues visited upon Egypt. So maybe that, that soldier there was just seeking a bit of revenge for the loss of that which he cared about most. I, uh, I grew up, you know, low these many years ago uh, in the 1980s uh, during the waning days of the Cold War. And as a, as a baby in the Cold War in the 80s, I, I can imagine it was very different than growing up, say, in the Cold War in the 50s or 60s. I, we didn't have any duck or cover drills. Uh, instead, uh, we had the great buildup of military might under Ronald Reagan. And one of the first movies that my parents ever took us to uh, was the movie Top Gun. And I, I, I think my parents probably regretted this afterwards because we weren't very old at the time. My brother and I weren't very old at the time when we went. Um, but again, you, you watch the movie Top Gun and you see this incredible might, the incredible power of the U.S. military. And I, got, I drank that Kool-Aid and thought it was so cool. You do see a body, of course, in, uh, in Top Gun. It's the body of Maverick, played by Tom Cruise. His great friend Goose, played by Anthony Edwards, uh, dies in the sea. His great friend dies. What you don't see, though, you don't see any of the bodies of the downed MiG pilots, uh, the enemy Soviets. That never comes up. It's all rah-rah U.S. Go defeat the enemy. Again, I, I was so fascinated by this, I, I studied as much as I could about uh, the American war machines, uh, the impressive M1A1 Abrams tanks, or the uh, incredible naval ships that we had, and the great aircraft that uh, flew off our aircraft carriers, or from our airfields around the world, uh, our bombers and missiles, uh, the great might of the U.S. military. It inspired me. I could tell you all sorts of details about it that I'll refrain from doing right now. <laughs> and this past week, I was, I was flipping through Netflix um, at night, and I was looking for something to distract me, and I ran across this one documentary. Maybe you've seen it. It's, it's World War II in color. And then, like, I left out the descriptions, like, oh, I know you've seen these images, but now they're in color, so now it's going to be transformed. Uh, I didn't think it was that transformative to see things in color. But I did watch through it, and again, there's this narrator talking about the strategy and tactics of the war uh, with each different episode, and you see these different images. And because this passage was on my mind, it struck me uh, that you see a lot of explosions, you see a lot of military machines, you hear a lot of these tactics back and forth. You don't see a lot of bodies. You certainly don't see a lot of bodies of German or Japanese soldiers, or civilians for that matter. It's, uh, it's natural to want to avoid the ugly parts of war, just human nature. Uh, we don't like thinking about that. We'd rather think about the great military might rather than the cost of war. It's also natural for us to side with our tribe, our team. You know, last night uh, I found myself drawn into the UT football game as they were struggling against USC and lost in double overtime at the end, which crushed me. We follow our tribe, we follow our team, we root for them, and that's true in war too. We celebrate our side's victories uh, and the other side's defeats. 
There's also oftentimes a racial and ethnic tinge to this. World War II, very famously, in February 1945, the uh, Royal Air Force launched a firebombing attack against the German city of Dresden, uh, leveling Dresden. Uh, Even at the time, this drew moral condemnation from people, and afterwards in the 1940s, there was a whole investigation about the firebombing of Dresden and the morality of it. Uh, At the time, initial estimates ran as high as 200,000 dead. Uh, After the investigation, the numbers were more accurately revised down to 25,000 dead. Uh, But still, these were civilians killed in this firebombing. What's interesting is, in spite of the outcry over the firebombing of Dresden, there was a comparatively muted response to the firebombing of Tokyo. Uh, The firebombing of Tokyo, a month later, that killed some 100,000 Japanese, four times as many as died in Dresden, and yet something about uh, killing Japanese didn't disturb uh, the the conscience of Americans and Brits the same way as killing Japanese did. The Vietnam War, uh, the United States uh, lost 58,000 soldiers, roughly. During the Vietnam War, there were some 1.2 million Vietnamese who died in both North and South. So roughly 20 Vietnamese died for every American soldier who died during the Vietnam conflict. Wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, we've lost some 7,000 American soldiers in the last 15 years. 7,000 soldiers. And another roughly 7,000 Americans have died who were contractors or government workers. It's estimated that there's some 300,000 uh, Iraqis, Afghans, or Pakistanis who've also died in this conflict. And for a rough estimate of 20 Iraqis, Afghans, or uh, Pakistanis for every one American who's died in those conflicts. It's a lot of bodies floating on the seashore. But I have to be honest, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, part of me is still torn over this. As it's, as it's often been. I've, I've preached on war before. Uh, I think war is an important endeavor for Christians to speak about and to talk about and to wrestle with. And as I've expressed before, war does is something that I wrestle with. Um, it tears me up because there are lots of things to consider. And Christians have been considering these things for the last 2,000 plus years, wrestling with, is there a time when war can be good or not? Is it ever justified or not? If so, what are the boundaries that should, that should be put be, should be put around it or not. The most famous uh, discussions of this fall under the rubric of just war theory. One of the hallmarks of just war theory, one of the, one of the basic tenets of just war theory, is that you should always fight uh, a war only if you've been attacked. You should fight in a righteous cause, uh, and you should only fight if a greater good will be achieved as a result of fighting than not. So you look at the Israelites on the shore. Tragic that uh, the Egyptian soldiers died in that, but at the same time, it was on behalf of the liberation of the, of, of the Israelites uh, from a truly oppressive regime. It's a righteous conflict, if there ever was one. What about uh, the Second World War, often seen in uh, our consciousness as being a righteous conflict? We were attacked uh, by fascism. Uh, We were defending democracy, liberty, the right to self-determination. Same thing could be said uh, for the North during the American Civil War, fighting to end the great scourge of slavery, to keep the Union together. Perhaps that was a righteous war. Things get a little more complicated when we start looking at the Vietnam conflict. What about the war in Iraq? Or the Spanish-American War? Or the Mexican War? or the American war that was waged against uh, Native Americans during the second half of the 19th century, 
or even the American Revolution. It's a righteous war, and what's not, it gets very complicated very quickly. Just War Theory also talks about um, justifying the, the, the damage that's done because it saves more lives in the long run. Okay, we might lose a certain number of lives now, but more lives have been saved. The, the classic example of this is the dropping of the atom bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August of 1945. The argument on behalf of that has always been as destructive as the atom bombs were, uh, as many lives as they were cost, uh, they saved far more lives had the Americans invaded mainline, mainland Japan. Not just American lives, but also Japanese lives. The problem with this type of reasoning is we don't know what the future would have been. Those who argue against this uh, point to quite compelling evidence that the Japanese were ready to surrender regardless of whether the atom bombs had even been dropped. Things get complicated. At the same time, uh, there's a story that uh, that always struck that always stuck with me from when I was in high school. My uh, one of my high school history teachers shared a story of his father. I think I shared this before in a sermon last year, but it's compelling enough to repeat the story of his father, who uh, was a soldier in World War II, got uh, drafted towards the end of the war, and uh, you know, as as told told me he. He had bad teeth growing up, but he decided to invest all of his savings in getting his teeth fixed before he'd go out and fight for the U.S., and uh, he found himself uh, slated to be on the first wave of the invasion of Japan. And the uh, expected survival rate for the first wave of the invasion of Japan was 0%. And all of the soldiers who were slated for that wave had already written all their letters back home in anticipation of not returning, and already had them ready to be put in the mail. And uh, he tells a story that when his father heard that the Japanese had surrendered, he said every, every soldier in that ship just broke down and started crying. They'd already prepared themselves to die. And all of a sudden, they had a chance to live. Another thing that Just War Theory talks about is proportionality. Your enemy attacks you and takes ten of yours. That does not justify turning around and killing a hundred of theirs. Uh, that if you're going to have some sort of just war, there has to be some sense of proportionality in a response. This is a basic tenet, but, uh, and again, this also is complicated. This all changed for the U.S. during the Korean War. So in the Korean War, if you, were, if you recall, uh, again, this is where the historian in me gets to, all that, all that military history comes up somewhere. Uh, in the Korean War, of course, Kim Il-sung attacks the South in uh, June of 1950, pushes the South... Koreans uh, down to the very edge. Uh, the UN forces under the leadership of General MacArthur uh, respond in September 1950 with a landing at Incheon, pushing the North Koreans up near the Yalu River, which then leads to the uh, joining in the conflict of the Red Army of China. And the Chinese send huge waves of men over the Yalu River uh, to launch a massive counterattack against the U.S., which leads to what is probably the single largest military defeat in American history uh, and pushes the Americans back near the 30th parallel. Uh, not only does this lead to the dismissal, eventual dismissal of Douglas MacArthur, but it leads to the appointment um, of a new person in charge of the Eighth Army, a guy by the name of Matthew Ridgway, one of the true American heroes of the, uh, of the U.S. Army. Matthew Ridgway realized that, that the Chinese would always outnumber the Americans. Always. There was nothing they could do to field as many men as the Chinese could. It simply was not possible. Uh, but what the Americans did have was superior technology. And so Ridgway not only uh, reinstilled confidence in the American military, but used American military might in order to dent the Chinese onslaught. 
he very intentionally had disproportional conflict. He would kill 10 Chinese for every one American who died by using the advanced American artillery, aircraft, bombers, etc. It's being disproportionate in order to save American lives. The same theories ran true in Vietnam. Is he right to have done that? Death is clearly bad. War is clearly bad. You celebrate the death of Osama bin Laden or not? So this past week, I had a... Finally, my insurance adjuster arrived at my home, uh, which I was grateful for. Uh, the first trip, he, ran, he, he went through the house relatively quickly because he had a lot of houses to do, but then he, he had some more things he had to fix, so he came back the next day uh, to take more pictures and more measurements of my house to find out what the insurance company would fix and what they wouldn't. Uh, and so we were, he was doing these measurements, and then he obviously didn't have any schedule afterwards because then he started chatting with me. Maybe it's just because I'm a minister and he knew that, and that whenever you're a minister, people tend to engage you in conversation, uh, which is a good thing, which is a good thing. So again, we were talking about football and Texas and various things, and then the, then the conversation started to go off in a wrong direction where he started, or at least bad direction for me, he started to uh, heavily critique Colin Kaepernick and sitting down, and then he had said some very nasty things about African Americans, and I'm like, well, let's move this back to football. So uh, I tried to bring it back to football, and he had spent his freshman year at University of Texas. And then he was drafted into the Army. He said that he had served, uh, then he went to OCS and ended up uh, becoming an officer. And I said, well, did you go serve in Vietnam? And he said, yes. What did you do in Vietnam? He said, I was a platoon leader in the infantry. I said, okay. And I said, well, when did you go there? And I said, I arrived just after the Tet Offensive in 1968. Here's me, the, the military dork. And this is, this is actually, <laughs> I still can't believe I was saying these things. Whatever. Um, here's the, I, I, I then came back, I said, well, you know, everything I've heard is, you know, while the Tet Offensive was bad for American morale, uh, in fact, the Viet Cong revealed all their, you know, revealed all their positions, and in the American counterattack, it actually gave a chance for the Americans to have, and Americans and the South Vietnamese, to have a leg up on the Viet Cong for the first time. So that this has really uh, laid the groundwork for what became the stalemate post-1972, that were it not for Watergate, might still be the case today. So, was saying, oh yeah, Tet Offensive. <laughs> and I could tell by my conversation that he had a different perspective on it. <laughs> he said, well, when I got there, um, so when I got there, they, uh, what he remembered was after the Tet Offensive, uh, Lyndon Johnson stopped bombing, ordered the cessation of bombing of the Ho Chi Minh Trail and other supplies to the south, which for the soldiers on the ground meant uh, that the, their opponents would have more arms. That. He also remembered a change in, in uh, the rules of engagement, where they changed the rules of engagement as opposed to doing search and destroy with their platoons. Uh, they had to do a search and reconnaissance work, so they could only fire if being fired upon. And so you could, I looked, as I looked into his face, he, he uh, was very emotional. He was talking about this. Imagine walking into a village, and you're the lieutenant in charge of this platoon, and you literally have to wait until someone shoots at you before you can do anything back. these stories, this lived reality, got me thinking. Recently, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, Confederate statues in uh, the American South. Some people saying, hey, the, the service of my ancestors who were Confederate soldiers should be celebrated, should be honored. They fought for a cause that they believed in. 
even if it was a losing cause, even if it wasn't for the best, they still were fighting for that. They respond with other stories saying, hey, but my ancestors were former slaves in the South. And after we were freed and after Reconstruction, then we remember that then there was that horrible compromise of 1877 that ended Reconstruction, and then this whole white supremacist Jim Crow regime started to descend on the South, and that's when the statues got built so that they could be reminders to my ancestors of where we belonged in the, in, in the pecking order of things. And that that's what the statues mean to me. Sharing of stories. This past week, I... Uh, met up with a friend of mine from college who I hadn't seen in a while, uh, who was in my uh, fraternity, and after he graduated from Harvard, he signed up to go serve in the Marine Corps. Uh, he served in the Marine Corps, went over to Iraq, fought in Iraq, and uh, he shared at one point just a story of he was recently having dinner with his father and his father-in-law, uh, both of whom also had gone to Harvard, uh, and they were uh, joking over drinks about their low draft number and the way that they got out of the draft. And he said he kept silent, but he was just bubbling up with rage there. There's someone who had volunteered to fight and had served in Iraq, hearing his father and grandfather make jokes about how successful they were at being able to avoid draft. Ethical theory in the last 30 years has shifted. Long time, there's this, for a long time, ethical theory was about the structures of ethics that guide our thinking. Things like just war theory. If we can come up with some sort of good uh, set of guidelines, then we can you know, move ourselves in a good ethical direction. But since the early 1980s, ethicists have taken a different direction because we don't actually make ethical decisions around war or other things based on some framework. We make ethical decisions based on our own narratives, our own stories based on our own life stories, based on the paths that we've walked on, based on the experiences that we've had, when we come across a new experience, that's why we make that decision. And there are a whole bunch of factors that go into it, but it's fundamentally rooted in a narrative that you hold within your hearts. If we are going to live more ethical lives, one of the key elements is not only to share our stories, but to hear other people's stories. That's true in, all sorts of our, in, in many parts of our lives, but also we consider issues of war and peace what's ethical, and what's not. Today is International Peace Sunday, that Sunday that falls between September 11th and September 21st, uh, declared by the United Nations. Today, uh, as much as any other day, I lift up uh, the ethical problem of peace, something that has plagued us as long as humanity has been around. We are going to actually find some sort of ethics of way forward, about how peace and war fit together, I would suggest that the thing we have to do is hear our stories. If you've served in the military, have you told your children, or your friends about that service, what it was like? It doesn't have to be on the front lines. In fact, most people who serve in the military do not serve in combat roles. You still shared that. Stories of your parents who might have served in the military. Friends. Or people who served on the home front. Different perspectives. Tonight, it turns out, tonight, it turns out, is the beginning of a documentary, a 10-part documentary by Ken Burns on the Vietnam War, where Burns goes out of his way to actually show stories of both Vietnamese as well as Americans, both home front as well as soldiers. A series I look forward to seeing, to hear those stories, to stretch my mind. Stretch my mind. The more stories we hear, we begin to see the ethics of war and peace in a new light.
and I hope that as uh, not only we here, but others in this country move forward and continue to discern what's, war, what's worth war and what's not, that whatever we do, we can't forget that image of those, of those dead Egyptians on the seashore. As we see those bodies, we realize that they have stories too. Stories that we have to hear. We might disagree with them, but at least if we hear them, we can have a sense of the horrors of war and maybe, by the grace of God, find ourselves to a place of peace.